Welcome to the Clarinet Podcast, the show about all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. You can support the ongoing production of this independently produced program by donating to our Patreon at clarinet.com support. Supporters get early access to extended ad-free podcasts and exclusive access to patron-only episodes and live events. And now for today's episode, Band Orchestration 101 with author and composer Brett Newton. Orchestration is the art of understanding the ensemble, putting the right part in the right instrument at the right time. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Brett Newton to discuss two of his new books about band orchestration. This is an often overlooked topic, and it's really great to dive in. We discuss what orchestration is and why it's valuable to think from a composer's perspective, the history of the wind band and some of the instruments inside, like the saxophone, and how you can save 10% on Brett's new book as a clarinet subscriber. This topic today is of special interest to me, not only because I spend so much time teaching in school bands, and uh, Brett explains that that's where I think 90% of actual wind band music is written, um, but also because I spent a lot of time as a uh, clarinet player in wind ensemble when I was in university, and I sort of realized that this genre is super neglected, but super um, interesting and has a lot of potential. There's some really great pieces like Music for Prague, um, Child's Garden of Dreams by David Maslanka, and many others that are just really stellar in this category. And uh, Brett and I also talk a little bit about how these pieces that are truly artistic deserve to stand on their own and why wind bands, in our opinion anyways, should stop playing orchestral transcriptions. Let each genre be what it is. So anyways, I really hope that you enjoy this episode today and don't forget to check out Brett's books and actually his new podcast, which he recently started on band orchestration. It's called The Band Nerdcast and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. We'll get started right after this short message from our sponsor, Dario Woodwinds. Thank you so much for listening. Today's episode of the show is brought to you in part by Jadario Woodwinds and their new weekly trivia show called Don't Blow It. You can check it out every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on their Instagram channel. And if you know the right answers to the questions, you might even have the chance to win some amazing new gear. By the way, if you haven't checked out Jadario's new reserve clarinet reads, you're in for a real treat. They're using some amazing new technology and manufacturing techniques that are helping achieve super consistent results. These reeds are now available for E-flat, B-flat, and bass clarinet, and you can pick up a box at your local music store. Or, if you want to order online, you can head right now to clarinet.com slash reeds. Before we get started, would you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested and inspired to uh, write about wind band orchestration? Uh, well, let's see. I am a, a composer, orchestrator, uh, bassoonist. Uh, dabble in most of the other woodwinds um, to some extent. Um, I have an undergrad degree in music theory and composition, master's degree in bassoon performance. Um, I used to do a lot of freelance bassoon and contrabassoon playing. Um, but now I'm just uh, doing uh, composing and orchestrating gigs mostly. Well, first of all, tell me about the book and why you decided to write this book. Where was there a need for this sort of genre of writing? I've been really involved in wind bands 1994 when I started band or something like that. Um, so it's coming up on nearly 25 years. It sitting in the bassoon chair, I, I really have this interesting, uh, unusual opportunity to just kind of sit back a lot of times and take in what everybody is doing to 
essentially of the bridge between the wind, the woodwinds, the brass, and just this fascinating position where I'm like, this works, this doesn't work. Why did the composer do this? And so my mind being as analytical as it is, like, huh, I'm st- so I'm analyzing everything as I'm playing. And this goes all the way back to when I was a beginner, second year student. It's like, man, this is fascinating. I want to learn more. And I remember in seventh grade, I would go in every morning to band rehearsal or to not to band rehearsal, but they were having sectionals in the morning. And I would listen to every other instrument sectionals, you know, not just mine. So I'm thinking, okay, what are they doing? Why are they doing this? And just this really driving passion to understand the medium so fast forward to when I start thinking about being a composer, I look at what's the literature out there on um, how to write for band. And essentially, it doesn't really exist much. There are a couple of books. There's a book by a guy named Joseph Wagner that was written in the 50s. There's another one by Erickson that was written in the 80s, but both of those books are severely outdated and really don't address the uh, the modern wind band as it exists now. And they they just are very uh, surface level. It's like, man, we need to go a lot more in depth because there's so much more nuance here. <laughs> well, so for those of us who are mostly players. Um, First of all, what is orchestration and, and why is it something we should be interested in? Orchestration is the art of understanding the ensemble, putting the right part in the right instrument at the right time. It uh, can be one of the most nuanced um, aspects of composing. Uh, if you look at a, a piece of music, you've got a few separate elements. You've got the melody, you've got the harmony and counterpoint, you've got the rhythm, and then you've got the timbre. The timbre is what really makes up the orchestration. And understanding how the different instruments work together is uh, one of the fundamentals of orchestration. And then orchestration really can be broken down into uh actual orchestration, and then instrumentation. So in the the two books that are out now, orchestration really takes over volume one, which goes over how to put things together, how to arrange things. And volume two focuses more on the instrumentation, what each instrument individually can do. And volume two is for the woodwinds. So volume three and four are going to be Volume three is going to be brass and volume four will be percussion and auxiliaries, at least as it's planned right now. Things could change and I have to condense or expand, but that's that's kind of the plan right now. So, of course, the term band can be pretty broadly used, everything from a rock band to, uh, you know, anything we want, really. For the purposes of your book, what does band mean? It, it means basically the, the wind band, the concert band. So it does not go into to jazz band. It doesn't go into rock band. So I'm really just looking at wind band, concert band, wind ensemble. So what exactly is this genre then and when did it come into prominence? 
we have wind bands going back into the the medieval era. Um, you see wind groups getting together. So you would have it back in this time, the medieval era, the Renaissance era, loud ensembles and soft ensembles. Uh, the loud ensemble would be instruments like trumpets, uh, trombones, then called the sackbut and shams. These are instruments that would be played outdoors. But if you wanted a soft ensemble, you take things like recorders, and that would be played more indoors. And this is pretty prominent throughout the medieval Renaissance era. And we get into the Baroque era, and we get things like um, – handles music for the royal fireworks. So really, in essence, the wind band is an older ensemble than the orchestra. It's interesting because it, it often doesn't get credit for being an older ensemble. Like I would sort of think, in in my mind, the history of the wind ensemble, the modern wind ensemble, would, would almost more start around like the period of Holst. What, what do you think of that? We have uh, lots of band works going well before that. Uh, in the early classical era, we've got uh, the tradition of the harmony music in Germany and Austria. And we have lots of examples of that. Uh, the, one of the most famous examples is, of course, the woodwind quintet, which is a derivative of the harmony music. Uh, but the most famous example of that would be uh, something like Mozart's Grand Partita. And that really is a, a band piece, though, a lot of people who think of band music don't think of it that way, but you look at it, it's all winds and brass and a single string bass. I wonder why we don't think of it that way. Um, I am not entirely sure, to be perfectly honest. I think we have gotten to the point where we think of the band as being this ensemble for educational purposes only and in order to be this music it's got to have this 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 and this you know you've got to include saxophones and you've got to have tubas but if you really look at it historically there's a lot more i mean in the the 19th century we've got berlioz symphony um not the not the symphony fantastique but the funeral and triumphal symphony one of his other symphonies is a work for band so at what point would you say the modern um, wind orchestra or wind band that we are studying in your books here um, would take place? And, and the one that like if a composer today was going to sit down and, and write for wind band, um, what does it look like? And when did that really come into existence? If we want to look at the modern wind band as is, we're probably looking back to the late 1800s with uh, groups like Patrick Gilmore and John Philip Sousa. And these would be groups that's, uh, and really you do have to kind of look at um, Adolf Sachs in his contributions, developing things like bass clarinet, the sax horns, and of course the saxophone. Um, Gilmore in the U.S. was really the first to bring the saxophones over from Europe, and Sousa followed him. But you also have this really strong tradition in France as well with the Garde Republicaine. And you look at stuff from them. A uh, famous example is, uh, I think, 1914, we get Florence Schmidt's Dionysiacs, which is just this monster piece for wind band, and it's just one of the most incredible pieces of music. So it's interesting you mentioned the saxophone because that was actually 
right up next here on my list of things I really wanted to ask you about. How does an instrument like the saxophone, which never really found its place in the orchestra, but and it's a lot louder by nature, how does this affect the genre and the music that can and maybe cannot be written for it? Saxophone's interesting in that. Um, if we really look at the, the history of the saxophone, a lot of it, the instrument itself seems to have been designed for the wind band. If you look if you look at the French wind band of the middle of the 1800s, it's not a well unified ensemble. It's missing a lot. It doesn't have a lot of the middles, it doesn't have a lot of the lows. So if we think about saxophone history, saxophone was originally developed as a bass instrument and we gradually moved toward the higher voices. But Something like saxophone, I think, really has gotten a a bad rap from orchestrators, from composers. In doing research and in being a, a saxophonist myself, I'm sitting here looking at several of my saxophones. Um, the saxophone has less in common with the clarinet that most people think, and it has much more in common with the bassoons and oboes, with the double reed instruments. And I think a lot of people kind of forget that. In what ways? Acoustically, uh, timbrally. So if you, the only real similarity between the saxophone and the clarinet, you can really say is the the single reed uh, mouthpiece. But if you look at it acoustically, saxophone fingerings are nearly identical to the oboe. The sound is much more akin to that of the oboe and the bassoon. Especially when you deal with overblowing of the octaves. If you can understand writing for saxophone, you can understand writing for wind band a lot. And it's really one of the big differences between orchestrating for band and orchestrating for orchestra. The word itself, orchestrating, seems to be biased. It is. And, you know, uh, my, my original blog that a lot of this is taken from is Bandistration. And it's this, this horrible portmanteau of a word. I like it. Reminds me of clarinet a little bit. <laughs> I think that the saxophone actually opens up some really new, interesting, um, especially with its entire family. Like no other instrument really has a family like that that's ever present in the wind ensemble maybe except for the clarinet, but we rarely see alto and uh, E-flat and uh, all the different clarinets together. When you do, it's kind of a treat. But saxophone is almost always the soprano, the alto, the tenor, and the and the berries. So um, I just feel like it's a very interesting sort of place, which is notably uh, missing from the orchestra. And the only other thing you know that's completely missing from the wind band that the orchestra has, obviously, is the strings. I just meant meant like sort of like timbre wise or or what can be explored as a composer or orchestrator that cannot be explored with the orchestra using the wind band and its, you know, unique differences as an ensemble. Okay. Um well you're you're very right that the, the saxophones really encompass the all one of the only uh complete timbres we have from soprano through bass in the ensemble. And that's that's an opportunity that it can really be explored. Uh, but if you're you're talking about the differences orchestrationally between orchestra and band, I think a lot of it you need to think on really a different wavelength. 
Because when I'm writing for band, I'm thinking about the ensemble itself. I'm thinking, what are the this? What's this player going to do? What's that player going to do? And I'm not. There are things that I can't do with a band that I can do with an orchestra, and vice versa. Uh, so, for instance, I can't write these long-held notes in the upper register for uh, a wind band. It's like I could on just like vi- high violins or violin harmonics. It's just not something that's feasible. Whereas in an orchestra, I can't write these hugely powerful um, passages with all the winds blaring because, you know, the strings will soften it just a little bit. So there's there's some give and take there. And the, the music has to be appropriate for the ensemble. Let's move more into the types of music that you discuss. One of the things that intrigued me about your book was um, – you discuss not only band music in its artistic form, but also its educational form. And a lot of what we see in band music is interpreted to be educational. And, and uh, I was wondering if you could kind of break down the differences and uh, what makes each unique. Maybe 90% of all band music written is for uh, an educational mindset. Uh, here in the United States, band music is just huge. It because of the school band programs. I live in Texas and school band programs are one of the biggest uh, music programs around. In fact, we don't really see a lot of schools with orchestras here. Band is, you know, the primary educational ensemble. Almost every school will have uh, a band program. Some of the band programs around here are huge. There is, um, one uh, band here that on their marching band field will play 600 players. Oh, my God. That's insane. Yeah. Um, it, I don't even know how they move, but. I can't imagine the sound. That must be incredible. I, I, I have yet to hear it live, but uh, I'm sure it would be. But at some point, I think you start getting diminishing returns. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But. Uh, so dealing with educational stuff, it's almost a harder thing to write than it would be to write for uh, a professional um, or artistic group. For instance, I mean, if you're taking a piece and you for a, a young band, you have to know what the limits are. Say, OK, I know this is the range of the instrument, but I can't do this, this and this. Um, you know, with clarinet, if I am writing for um, an educational ensemble, I have to know that third clarinet part needs to be much simpler or that third clarinet part doesn't need to exist at all. And it just needs to be one and two or even one for something like being under clarinet. I know I need to know that I can't do a lot of stuff up in the upper uh, clarino and the altissimo range. And so the limiting factors make it much more difficult to write an interesting piece for beginner or second year band is really, really challenging. So interesting you say that because, I mean, one of the things that I encounter as a teacher of, of this kind of music is that oftentimes it seems like they really do think this way. And then oftentimes they sort of don't. So at what level are you able to start writing for the third clarinet as if it was, you know, the type of player you're, you're imagining would also be competent on the first 
chair? It really depends on the band program. Um, one of the bands I worked with pretty heavily when I was uh, teaching private lessons um, in seventh and eighth grade, second and third year, they were able to play stuff that some college bands were able to do. Uh, whereas when I was working uh, in some other schools, the high school was not able to play some stuff that beginner bands could do. There's such a wide range that it's it's so dependent on the situation. So the wind band has been used uh, a fair bit as a means for education. And part of this, I believe, is one reason that the wind band is just, um, you know, those who consume it and play it and, and, and uh, the people who teach it, they're always insatiable for new music, which is really interesting because this does not happen the same way in the orchestral field. Um, do you feel that this, you know, educational aspect is something that's that's led to that, or is it something different about the the people who listen to wind music, or what is it? I'm not sure if it's necessarily that. I think it's more people in the band world are looking to get to the level where the orchestra is. In in band, we can't go and play. A Beethoven symphony. I mean, we can, but it's transcribed and usually balderized. But there, there's not that equivalent of this great historical, you know, foundation. There's, you know, we can't go play a Beethoven symphony. We can't play a Mahler symphony. We can play a Sousa march, <laughs> you know, uh, but those, you know, have limited artistic value after a while they're great they're fun they they have wonderful melodies but artistically they don't hold the same candle as a Mahler symphony will and so I think there's this thirst to say okay what's next what what is going to get us to the point where we've got something really great do you feel like that point has in some ways existed, though? I mean, there are some really great wind band pieces, but maybe they're just out of the realm of what some of these groups can play and that they, they want to have access to more accessible music. I think a lot of that is the case. Uh, to go back to a piece I mentioned earlier, Dionysiacs. Uh, do you know the, the work by Florence Schmidt? No. What, what's it about? Uh, it's an early wind band piece, about 1914, written in Paris for the Garden Republican Band. And... It it is as almost as complex as the Rite of Spring. It's about a fourteen minute long work, and it is just absolutely mesmerizing. And we we looked at playing it once when I was in grad school, and you know the conductor after one rehearsal said, "I don't think we can play this. It's too hard." Part of that was all the parts were in a jumble and half handwritten, half printed. And so a lot of this older repertoire, it's harder to play. And that piece in particular has such a different instrumentation lineup that made it very difficult to pull off. As a composer for this genre, um, when you go to write music, do you first consider whether or not you want it to be an educational or art piece, as you call it, or is that something that comes secondary to the writing process? 
you have to think about who is going to play it first. So earlier this year, I did a piece specifically for a band I've worked with, and I'm thinking the entire time about how that band is going to perform the piece. So I'm thinking, what do they have in their ensemble? What's their skill set? So if I'm writing a piece for a younger band, I'm always thinking about it being for a younger band. Whereas if I'm writing a piece more for a professional group, I'm not thinking so much about the terms, um, what can they do? I'm thinking much more in terms of what makes the most sense musically. I find that interesting because to me, I, I imagine the way uh, writing a piece of music would work is is first being inspired by some sort of melodic or other idea and then going to put it to something else. But so so you sit down kind of with a canvas and think about the ensemble first, eh? So I can, I can actually talk, talk about that particular piece. In fact, um, that was uh, really interesting uh, in that I, I video documented the whole process on my YouTube channel. And so for that piece, the uh, piece ended up being called uh, Flower Moon. I was actually able from start to finish to write the whole band piece within a week. And so I, I've been ruminating on the piece for six months or so before starting down to actually write. The, the idea, though, came from us. I've got this ensemble. I want to write them this piece. And then I took it more, more really from visual imagery. It happened to have been a scene I had seen in – late May after returning home from a gig where there was just the most beautiful full moon out, just partially hidden behind clouds. And it's like, how can I translate that image, that absolutely beautiful night sky that's somewhat eerie, somewhat haunting, but somewhat just this gossamer gorgeous, and translate that into sound? And so I start thinking tone colors, I start thinking harmonies, and I just start working from there. And it's kind of like sculpting with clay. Just start molding and putting little detail in here, little detail in here. And by the end, you've got a finished sculpture or piece of music. And it's a very organic process in that regard. That's so interesting. There must be, you know, Every composer must work kind of in their own way. So obviously we're getting sort of a glimpse into how you work. But um, how do you think it works with transcriptions? Because this is the second, um, or I guess you would know, <laughs> but uh, this is sort of the third, actually, um, type of wind band music you mentioned in your book. You've got art music, you've got educational music, and then there's transcriptions, most often probably of you know orchestral music. Um, when you do transcriptions, is this also the, the primary concern? or Transcriptions are very different beast um in general i have to say i don't really like uh orchestral transcriptions i've played a lot of them and i don't fully think they work Mm, yeah well the clarinets end up always being used as the strings (laughs) right and i remember the very first orchestral transcription i ever played i was playing in a community band when i was really young player and we had the marriage of figaro overture and being a bassoon, it's like, all right, I get to play Marriage of Figaro. And then I see it, it's in B flat. Okay. And, you know, I have to learn this in B flat. And then 
years go by and I start having to learn my bassoon excerpts, like, oh, wait, this is in D? Oh, I have to relearn everything. Yeah, this happens a lot. And, you know, there's one transcription of the Pines of Rome, which uh, I guess I, I like the Pines of Rome. I'm, I'm just not so sure about this transcription. But the one thing I did like about it was they actually included the part. It was in the same key as the original, I believe. And they included the part in A, which I thought was so respectful of the clarinetist because <laughs> there's the big solo. And, you know, um, they did leave that solo intact in its original key, which was really great. Yes. And uh, I have to say kudos to the arranger there. But you always lose something. And I was um, I heard somebody talking about basically doing a a cover of a pop song the other day it says if you can't do it as good as the original or better don't do it or do it in a completely different style and make it your own and i think that's a really good way of thinking of transcriptions if you can't do it as good as the original composer and in most cases i don't think you really can uh, then do it so completely differently. The Eastman saxophone project um, does this great job where the, you know, a friend of mine just did a uh, transcription for him, the entire uh, pictures at an exhibition. And where they just did their played it entirely from memory. And it worked really well. And I think a transcription like that works well because it's so completely different. It's not beholden to the original. The thing about transcriptions that's interesting too, though, is that sometimes they give people a chance to, well, of course, that's the point, but they give people the chance to play music that they otherwise wouldn't play. So, for example, I know that uh, a lot of schools locally last year were doing little transcriptions of the Game of Thrones theme and uh, all that. And I, th I think there's some value to kind of getting a chance to play music that you're um, really interested in in that way. But at the same time, I, I definitely see what you mean. I mean, I, I've, I've heard one too many arrangements of you know Katy Perry songs or whatever that just I feel like they didn't need to exist <laughs> right yeah and it's it's this really fine line between keeping the artistic integrity yet having something for the group to play that they recognize and I don't know how fully I can walk that line it's so difficult totally well so one thing I really love about your book is uh and I wish that more kind of educational books in this way or, or reference books would would do this. But I, I love the ending section of the first volume where you talk about how to actually execute um, in different styles. Like you talk about how to write in a heroic way or mysterious texture or dark. Uh, could you go into that a little bit and, and kind of talk about, first of all, why you included that section, but also what some of those things may look like? There's a, a section I think you're referring to in the middle on uh, different uh, textures, and that's a, that's a real foundation of orchestration. What I did on that is I took one Bach chorale and I just reorchestrated it nine or ten times, each a completely different way, and say, okay, if you want to do this, this is an example of how you do it. And so I I do that and I just you know have the the original Bach chorale and then I say you know if you want it heavy you know put it all in like tubas and contrabass clarinet and trombones and don't use you know flutes and piccolos and clarinets 
it's about what you're using, what you're not using. And you get all these really great uh textures. And when I eventually do a second edition, that's a section I really want to expand on and do a lot more of that. Well, I think it's such a great idea. Like, for example, I was, uh, there's one, I've read several songwriting books as I try to kind of understand how this is done and, uh, you know, get better at it myself. And it's something I enjoy studying and learning about. And I listen to a lot of music. So I want to learn more, but I find that they're always so abstract and they, they, they talk about all these different ideas, but never really how to execute them. Like, or never how to pick the right chords or the right register of the guitar or anything like this. So it was a really welcome to s- surprise to sort of see some light into, okay, this is what we talked about and this is how it is used, you know? Yeah. And, and one of the things I set out to do when um, I was writing these, is like, I want to approach this from the most scientific viewpoint possible and just break it down. You know, there's a, there's a section in there where I go through, every possible two-voice pairing between all the woodwind instruments, all the brass instruments. So I I just set out a a matrix and said, all right, flute plus oboe, flute plus clarinet, flute plus saxophone, flute plus bassoon. And then you go to oboe and go through every possible permutation of those. And then I find excerpts from orchestral or band literature and uh, talk about those and say, how does this work? What do these pairings work with? And so approaching it from a fully scientific point of view like that, I think gives a lot of uh, detail and a lot of possibilities for the composer and orchestrator to use. Absolutely. So this book, um, where can it be purchased if someone's interested in checking out, um, you know, what you've what you've written about, obviously. And uh, is it available on Amazon or your website or where can people buy it? Yes, you, you can buy it either on Amazon or directly from me on my website. Uh, the website is brettnewtoncomposer.com. I have a full store there. Uh, and I do still have set up the the Clarinet discount. Uh, if you when you check out, just type in Clarinet, and there's a ten percent discount. Oh, awesome! That's a great little treat. I'll have to put that in the show notes. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I definitely recommend reading it. I mean, I, I've really enjoyed flipping through these volumes, and I look forward to the the next editions coming out. Is there um, anything else you'd like to go through? Uh, well, uh, there is one thing that I I am uh, going to be doing is. Um, I am working on a commissioning uh, project for a bass clarinet concerto. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, I've heard a lot of the, the guests on your podcast talk about uh, b- the playing the bass clarinet and uh, literature for it, and particularly when you were talking with Harry Sparnai. That was a great interview, and I'm sure he'll, he'll be missed, and I've seen lots of uh, – tributes to him but talking about really having original music for bass clarinet and so i've been in the the process of planning a a full bass clarinet concerto for some time now for bass clarinet and wind ensemble and you know there's not a lot in that realm and something i'm really working for in fact just before we were uh, we started talking. I was uh, messaging with Jason Alder, who's a bass clarinetist. Um, he's going to be helping me out with that, and as well as um, Cheyenne Cruz from uh, the Woodwire Duet. We'll be working on some of that, and I've I've finally got the whole the plan worked out, and it's actually going to be a really I think. 
fun piece. Um, I started thinking about this. If we think of a concerto and start thinking in terms of literature, most of the times, you know, if we think of characters, the the soloist in a concerto is kind of like the hero. Uh, But uh, then I started thinking, man, we like the heroes, but the bad guys are so much more fun. What if the, the, the soloist was the bad guy and the villain? And then I started thinking, man, that would be a really cool idea for a concerto. It's like, ah, that'd be the bass clarinet concerto, wouldn't it? It's got a little bit this dark, sinister side to it and just have the, the bass clarinet versus the band. <laughs> like that's like a fight almost. Yeah, exactly. And the, the whole <laughs> last movement would be just this fight. Well, thank you so much again, Brett, for coming on today. And uh, as the additional volumes of your book are released, uh, maybe we'll have you back for more discussion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you, Sean. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Clarinet Podcast. Show notes for this and all other episodes can be found at clarinet.com. While you're there, don't forget to join our email newsletter for free updates, exclusive offers, and a chance to win giveaways. Guests' requests, listener feedback, and comments can be sent to feedback at clarinet.com. Special thank you to our season sponsor, Dario Woodwinds. Don't forget to check out their new show, Don't Blow It, on Instagram, and also try a box of their new reserve clarinet reads next time you're at the music store. Clarinet is made possible by listeners just like you. You can support the ongoing production of this independently produced program by donating to our Patreon at clarinet.com support. Supporters get early access to extended ad-free regular podcasts and exclusive access to patron-only episodes and live events. This program was produced and hosted by me, Sean Perrin, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Music performed by Michael Lowenstern. Debate episodes co-hosted by Andrew Morrow. Audio editing by Brian Chappells. And copy editing by Megan Taylor. That's all for now. Be sure to tune in next time for more of what's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry on the Clarinet Podcast.